Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Lauten Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 173. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 172 you're listening to. My guest today is Jonathan Weiner, who is a mastering engineer and owner of MWorks Mastering Studio in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And he has worked with uh, quite a large array of people, including David Bowie, James Taylor, Aerosmith, Pink Floyd, Cream, John Cage, Juliana Hatfield, Nirvana, Miles Davis, yeah, quite an impressive list. He's also an associate professor in the music production and engineering department at Berkeley College of Music. So yeah, Jonathan Weiner coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. So as I mentioned in a previous episode, I uh, will be going to Europe this summer. I'll be in London and Paris and Amsterdam. And if you have any people that you know of in those cities that you think I should interview, send me a uh, guest suggestion by way of the WCA guest suggestion form. That's on the Working Class Audio website. It's at workingclassaudio.com. If you go over to uh, WCA guest suggestion form, appropriately titled, uh, there's a Google form there. Fill it out. Let us know about the person that you uh, think I should interview. And while I'm in Europe, I will uh, do my best to meet up with those folks and uh, and interview them. So yeah, do that. The uh, WCA guest suggestion form. If you have any comments or questions, obviously you can uh, email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. But do the guest suggestions, do that on the form because that's a great depository for me to uh, pick up all the guest suggestions that everybody's always throwing out at me, which is a lot. So <laughs> yeah, I like to keep it all in one place. So uh, recently I've been talking about Facebook and getting Facebook off my phone and not spending as much time on Facebook. Still posting, of course, for you know my production stuff and, and uh, working class audio. But uh, in kind of uh, t- to tie in with that, I got a, an email from WCA fan, Chris Lee. Hey, Chris, thanks for sending that email. He thinks that... Uh, this book uh, that uh, this book suggestion that he wanted to pass on uh, applies to mixing and also uh, uh, taking one skill to the next level in today's economy. It's uh, it's a book that I will uh, put a link to, and the book is called Deep Work: Rules for Focus Success in a Distracted World. So I'll put a link to that book, and I'll also put a link to the uh, the blog post that Chris suggests that I believe is actually tied to the book. I think the guy that wrote the book actually wrote the blog post. Really interesting. Have a look at it. The blog post is called uh, Beyond Hashtag Delete Facebook. More thoughts on embracing the social internet over social media. And, uh, you know, it kind of ties into, you know, how we control the marketing of ourselves uh, to some degree. There's a little bit in there about owning your own domain. And, you know, that just kind of goes back to my whole recent thing of redoing my mapudro.com website and really putting a lot of focus on that as much as possible. And, you know, I'm not on some crazy, you know, you got to get off Facebook now routine, but it's working for me. Uh, I'm spending my time in much more uh, productive ways, to be honest with you. I'm just, I'm getting more done and doing things that I think are, you know, better for uh, the future of the podcast, better for the future of my, you know, audio production career and all that, and better for the family in general and, and, and friends, you know, so you're not always on Facebook. And it's, it took a while with the Facebook off the phone thing to get used to that. I have to admit, it made me realize, wow, I really was going on Facebook quite a bit on my phone. So I really don't do that too much anymore. So long story short, uh, Chris Lee sent me this stuff, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pass it along. So uh, once again, thanks for uh, the suggestion there, Chris, and uh, thanks for listening. And I'll put all that stuff in the show notes uh, for this episode. Just go to workingclassaudio.com and you'll find it there. And when you're done with that, head on over to gearslets.com and check out the Audio Life subform that we sponsor and uh, have a look around and uh, participate in the discussion if you'd like. And also head on over to uaudio.com, visit our friends at Universal Audio and Check out videos from our friends, uh, Jakir King and Vance Powell, as well as uh, keep your eyes open for all the promos that they always have going on there because you don't want to miss out on that if you're in the market for uh, maybe a new Apollo or some plugins or a, or a satellite box to expand your DSP. That's at uaudio.com. Well, that's it. Grab your coffee, sit back, relax, or keep multitasking and, you know, do the dishes or set the studio up or do whatever it is you're doing. Maybe you're driving, maybe you're flying. Anyways, sit back and relax if possible and take a listen to this. 
This is our friend Jonathan Weiner here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to be on the podcast. Let's just go back a bit and tell me about how you got into mastering and how long you've been at it. So the how long you've been at it, it always feels funny. Once you get beyond a certain number, it almost feels funny to say it out loud. But 32 years I've been at it. I, I lost count at maybe five, 6,000 records. How I got into it, you know, there's two ways of answering the question or two, two versions of the story. I, on one hand, I think it was a total accident. I think that it's more likely that people these days think that they might want to go into mastering, but mastering was less well known. People were not as aware of the craft of it, you know, in the mid-1980s. It was something where I'd been working as a mixing engineer and a producer and a recording engineer. I, I was trained as a musician, and I was always interested in the marriage of music, music making, and technology. And I was offered a job in a mastering studio. I came in contact with a guy named Toby Mountain, who uh, ran Northeastern Digital Recording out of a, it was a small facility outside of Worcester, Massachusetts. And he was one of the first people to embrace mastering for digital media. And back then, that meant the CD uh, exclusively. He did not do any vinyl cutting. You know, we made some masters that, that ended up in a bin loop master and got turned into cassettes. But by and large, the, the focus was the, the new shiny round object, the digital media. It was appealing to me for a number of reasons. I, I think by nature a curious person, and digital audio back then looked like a magic trick. Like, how in the world does this work? You know, to be able to record into tapelessly, essentially. Although back then, the recording was being done to uh, the U-Matic format for mastering through the PCM-1610 system, but it wasn't analog anything. So there was a chance to kind of learn about this new technology, and, it, and there were other things that were very appealing about getting into mastering. Back in the day, you know, making a, a CD was not an inexpensive prospect. It, it cost more than making LPs. And the reason that I say that is it meant that anything that was coming through the mastering studio had to have a really good impetus for being released, which meant that there was a certain amount of care and effort, and there was a, a quality level uh, that that spoke to. So when I went to work in the mastering world, suddenly the, the quality of every record or every session that I worked on went up incrementally. There were no more demos. You know, there was no more sort of spending two or three weeks in a studio with a record that may or may not ever see the light of day. So that was kind of cool. And then the third leg of the stool for me was um, I grew up as a musician surrounded by an incredibly diverse set of musical inputs. Uh, I come from a, a family of classical musicians, uh, sort of neoclassical 20th century music. I grew up listening to WABC in New York City and the Casey Kasem and the, you know, the top 100 every week was kind of my gospel, you know, surrounded by the Jackson 5 and Hendrix and everything that was going on back then. And um, it also dabbled in playing jazz on my French horn. And I, I was just kind of all over the musical map. And that really lent itself well to being a mastering engineer, because if you're working on a different record every day, chances are it's going to be in a different musical language. And it was good to have come in contact with lots of musical languages. And I actually find it fascinating to cross genres all the time. So that's kind of how it happened. So on one hand, it was an accident. I, I, I got a job offer and it seemed like a cool idea. On the other hand, I, I think you could say I was well suited to it because of my musical versatility um, and also because of my curiosity and my inclination towards um, the sort of nerdier side of things, the technology. Did you ever look at that initial job as a stepping stone or did you take it very seriously and think, I found my place? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I didn't know whether or not it was going to be a, a two-year or a five-year or a 30-year gig, I never stopped thinking of myself also as a musician. And I've produced a number of records over the years, and I've been involved in, in many ways in music making. I've conducted chamber orchestras and done all kinds of other things. Um, but when I got the gig, I was like, man, this is really cool. I want to learn as much as I can about this and see where it takes me. What, uh, 
were some of the early lessons that you learned there from maybe the people around you? Were there any mentors or? It's interesting. Toby was definitely a mentor when it came to psyching out the technology. Um, there, there were incredible limitations around digital audio systems. You know, we, the, the size, the maximum size of the buffer that we had for crossfades in the first editing system was 30 milliseconds. So, you know, talk about doing musical edits of any complexity, and you had to be very clever about figuring out how to, to make those edits work. And I observed him really kind of uh, dominating. You know, he, he, he really sort of <laughs> took matters into his hands and, and kept after it until the edits were, were good. And sometimes it meant coming out analog, and sometimes we had to do silly tricks with the PCM-1610 systems dubbing from one to the other in order to get the results that we were after. But, you know, the mentoring at that time also came from, there's a guy named Ken Furatani who worked in digital audio in the area. There was a guy named Mike Sekiguchi who worked for Sony down in New Jersey. You know, these were people who knew about digital in the early days. And so I would soak up what I could from people that I could about the, the technology. I already came in with some skills in you know, analog signal processing. I'd mixed a lot of records. But learning how to EQ and compress and and listen as a mastering engineer is a little bit different. I worked primarily as a QC engineer for about the first 18 months. You know, talk about mentorship, listening to other people's work and and observing it day in and day out was as much as of an education as anything. Well, I can imagine that if you're being the QC person and being early in that career, were you ever hesitant to say, ooh, I think I hear a problem? Oh, no. Or is that a problem? No, no, no. That's your gig. I assume that most people are familiar enough with mastering that are listening to this that they understand what I'm about to say to be true. But when you master something, you are the final step. You know, you, mm. you, we've heard, oh, you know, oh, I'll fix it in the mix. Or maybe, oh, I'll fix it in mastering. But man, there's no such thing as I'll fix it in distribution. And so you got to make sure that there are no problems. And so it's absolutely your responsibility to log and note everything that you hear and then bring it to the attention of whoever it needs to be brought to the attention of, whether it's the engineer who prepared it or the artist or, or whatever. Um, I actually remember the first time I ever worked on a record that had uh, vinyl samples in it. And it was a pretty clean vinyl sample, but there was this one little click and it would show up like every 20 or 25 seconds. And I knew full well that it was part of the, the art, part of the, the content. But I had a responsibility to make sure I cleared it with the artist. Actually, the artist was this uh, interesting artist named Basehead. I, said, I apologized in advance and said, I, you know, I'm sure but this is probably fine, but I just wanted to make sure that you don't want me to take these clicks out because you know I can. And so... <laughs> Um, and we had sort of a, a laugh about it and on we went. But, you know, you absolutely owe it to the music and to the audience. And if you're working on someone else's music to the client to be absolutely vigilant because you are that last observer, you know, before the thing sets sail. And I've seen things happen that um, that resulted in discs having to be repressed and the implications of putting something out that isn't right are significant. A lot of pressure. It's a lot. Of, it's a lot of responsibility. You know, it's it's funny. The art of listening, active listening, while you're not doing anything, is um, is something that it requires a lot of patience and a lot of focus, and it's not for everyone. You can't be on Facebook having a chat or a discussion with somebody while you're QCing a record. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and you got to have a really quiet, quiet space to listen in, also. I mean, for QC, you know, headphones are fine, so you can block out some of the sound, but you sure don't want to have, you know, the sounds of trains and buses and planes around you um, while you're trying to QC a record. How long were you at Toby's place? I worked for Toby or with Toby for five years and then left and started MWorks, and uh, so I incorporated there in 1991. Your business sense, where did that come from? Did you learn from Toby? <laughs> Who said I had any? Or, or did you just kind of... Well, I'm just going to start a business. Let's see what happens. Well, like, you know, as it, maybe this is less true now than it was then, but I, I think some people who are in 
the sort of the world of creative arts, even if it's commercial distribution of creative works, often we start businesses so that we have a job. You know, it's necessity is the mother of invention. So I had obviously gotten a sense of billing and billing structure and how much time it would take to work on records to finish them. Um, And I put together a spreadsheet, you know, when I went out and said, okay, this is what I think I can make over the, you know, month by month over the first two years. And this is what I think I can afford for rent. And I knew I had to have an advertising budget. And I just created this little sort of fiction, which was a prediction of what it was going to take. And um, fortunately, I was uh, pretty well informed. It, It helped that I worked in the context of another business for those five years. So I got to observe what I did observe. Yeah, and and that's, I think, one thing in our world that maybe goes unspoken or we just don't discuss very much is we talk about mentorship in terms of learning the craft of audio, but learning the craft of audio and business is a whole nother bag of tricks. Yes, that's right. That's right. So where did your customer base come your client base. I had developed some clients who I was doing all of the work for them, and they came along with me. I also migrated, if you will. So um, Shrewsbury is about 35 miles west of Boston, and um, I set up in Cambridge, which is right across the river from Boston. And so immediately I was closer to a number of musicians, so there was some proximity that brought me some other work. And and I you know my aesthetic I think was somewhat different from Toby's and so I think each of us appealed to slightly different audiences, and it's a funny thing to talk about aesthetic in the context of mastering, you know, because I mean shouldn't one always be looking to do the right thing for a record as if there is such a thing as a single right thing, but you know different people hear things differently and have different tendencies and so on. So I think I think my personal aesthetic maybe. Um, appealed to a slightly different audience from Toby's. It's an interesting conversation because mastering basically started out as a transfer type That's right. task. So we've come to a different point where mastering has become, I don't know, it's almost become like a corrective step in the process to deal with the, this the multitude of variables that take place leading up to mastering because records are mixed and not always in the best of environments. Yeah. Well, yeah, the the idea of correction and and managing the translation from what's in the meter, you know, what's what's in the file um, to the listener, I think is half of what the the mastering engineer does. You know, Doug Sachs is credited as being the first true independent mastering engineer in the United States. And his brilliance was in being willing to to go in pursuit of quality of the transfer. Until he set off on his own, everybody who was mastering was really a transfer engineer and they would just work with a console and the console had all kinds of RC circuits and you know, a limiter and you know, everything was in the chain whether or not it needed to be in the chain. And, you know, Doug Sachs was bold enough to ask the question, well, does that really need to be in the chain or would it sound better without, you know, the capacitor being in line or what have you? And he went off on his own and people followed him because he clearly cared about the sound of the records. But um, so I guess I'm saying that in the to sort of reinforce this idea that it's about making sure you get the best transfer, making sure that the thing ends up in the best state possible. Nowadays, when I think of the idea of correction and mastering, I I think sometimes people make fantastic mixes, but they're listening in terrible environments. And it's the mastering engineer's job to try to figure out what they might have been hearing and kind of doing some audio chiropractic to put the record back where the the mix engineer and the producer and the artist thought it was uh, so that it goes out in the world sounding the way they thought it should. You know, I often find myself trying to kind of um, psych out or reverse engineer what the mix engineer might have been hearing. Um, and I, th- I just think the, the reality is that most mix environments, there's not as much budget put into them as maybe could be in order to give you the best accurate you know, reflection of what you're doing. You know, we talk, we're talking about transfer 
And coming from the past, you know, a lot of the times there was the transfer of analog to a digital format. Obviously, analog to analog formats for for quite some time was the only way to do it. Then we went from analog to digital. I don't want to say exclusively, but I would I would venture to guess the majority of the time we're dealing with files. It's still a format, but we're de- we're dealing in digital files and there's not a lot of D to A happening unless the mastering engineer chooses to go through a series of analog processing. So when we're talking about an in-the-box type environment, what are the the things that take the place of the quote-unquote transfer? Well, yeah, here... Well, there's two things, right? Obviously, there's the signal path, whatever it happens to be. I'm somebody who, with with some exceptions, I I believe that the distinction between analog and digital has really vanished. Um, I mean, there's some chaos and and nonlinearity in certain analog circuits that that are hard, that's hard to model if you're going for that specifically but otherwise conversions really really good you know we have lots and lots of dynamic range if you take care of having clean power in your facility you've got all of the dynamic range you could ever want and so whether you are working coming out of analog or digital you, it's because it's the better thing to do but you still have to manage gain staging, you still have to manage the transition from a higher bit rate to lower bit rate. You have to manage the sample rate conversion if one needs to happen. So that's part of the transfer. But really the bigger issue, I think, is just what you hear. It's all about what you hear. I mean, for everybody. You know, if you're a mix engineer, if you can't hear well, you can't make all the best decisions. And for mastering, it's that times 100, right? Because you're sort of that final point of reference where you're listening to the mix and saying, that's awesome. How do I need to do anything here in order to make it better or make it translate well out into the world? Um, So the transfer for me is really the transfer from the monitors into the room, into the ear of the mastering engineer. And and that's the thing that determines what the result is. I've had an experience recently uh, just sending out some mixes to uh, a couple different mastering engineers and just so the band could make a decision and have like a point of reference to say, well, person A does it this way, person B does it this way. And I have to admit, this recent experience kind of shocked me because the differences were so extreme Uh in in the presentation that it it truly is, uh, if you don't go through those efforts to get and I know that uh, some mastering engineers say, I don't do test masters, but you could very easily wind up with the wrong person for the job yeah. because you just kind of buy into that one person. Yeah, that's right. And you, ha- and you never know. So in this case, had the band that I was working with chose person A, we never would have known how good it could sound because ultimately they chose person B. Right. So, well, this is, a, this is sort of a thorny subject, but I don't mind wandering into the thicket. Um, (laughs) You know, I think that if you have established good communication Mm -hmm. with a, um, you know, whoever, whether it's a mix engineer or a mastering engineer, um, or communicate well where you're at with what you've got, um, and then they communicate back in advance of doing any work about what they hear and what they might want to change. Um, And you have a process together that while I absolutely concur that, you know, Bob Ludwig will handle things different from, you know, Tom Coyne would have, you know, RIP. Um, So there there are stylistic differences and there's some aesthetic differences, but I believe that you could work with either one of them and get what you want so long as you have that communication. I do think, and and this is just my perspective, but I'll say it, that mastering engineers who think that they know what's right and to hell with the artistic vision or they're not willing to listen to the artistic vision or, or engage in collaboration, I think that's a problematic stance. And I know that that sometimes sort of manifests out there, but but... You know, pretty much everybody that I know that works at a high level is engages in that communication both upfront and wants to hear feedback. 
and then wants to work to make something right for a client. So I guess the moral of the story is, you know, communicate and and make sure that you have that line of communication and that everybody's on the same page about how the process is going to go. And don't wait until the night before to send your track to mastering. <laughs> like that ever happened. Well, I, I totally... I see where you're what you're saying, and that makes complete sense. Now, help me with this because I and I experienced this many years ago as a mix engineer, where I was hanging on every word of a particular client's desires, their descriptions, uh, all the adjectives they use to describe what they thought the mixes should sound like. When I generated the first round of mixes, they're like, "No, nah, man, this is all wrong." Yeah, and I said, "Well." Let me go at it my way. Yep. <laughs> and then when I did that and gave it to him, he goes, now that's what I'm talking about. And what I gave him versus what he was saying, in my mind, were two very different things. Yes. So mastering, how do we, how do we battle it there? Well, you know, mixing is it's interesting. You know, m there's a lot more latitude in mixing than there is in mastering. And, you know, there are a million possible answers in mixing and maybe a thousand possible answers in mastering. So I think that um, it it should be easier for a mastering engineer to say, you know, listen to your mix and sounds great. It feels to me like the vocal presence could come forward a little bit and maybe the whole thing could be a little bit brighter. And, you know, I'm going to set the level here. I don't think this needs to be the loudest record ever, but here's the level, you know, here's what I compare it to. And, and to give some basic, easily digestible feedback. Um, and then the mix engineer can say, actually, you know what, I sort of like the, the, mic, the vocal buried or, you know, whatever. So that there can be some back and forth to come to some agreement about what the treatment's going to be. So long as you're good at communicating, I think, and, and uh, establishing some common vocabulary, I think you can happily get to the end. I mean, you got happily to the end of your story, but I've had exactly the same thing happen to me as what you describe. I was working on a record over the internet, of course, for a singer-songwriter in Hong Kong, and she said, you know, do whatever you want to do. I just wanted you to know I really like the Nora Jones record, you know, that song, Don't Know Why. And so I tried to match the vocal presence and the warmth and the positioning. And she said, you know, it sounds good, but the vocal's a little too warm. It's a little too far forward and whatever. And I went through two rounds with her before I did what you did, which was to just do what I thought was best. And, I, and she said, that's exactly right. And I said, well, well, you know, what was up with the Nora Jones record? And she said, well, I just like that record. And I was like, okay, cool. So... Now we have to make sure that we ask better questions, you know? You assume that she meant, make it sound like the Nora Jones record. That's right. And that was all she could think of to offer. I mean, she was not a technical musician or a technically inclined musician. Yeah. Um, and so, um, anyway, that was, was a good lesson. I had a good chuckle. And I get, I get to tell you the story, so it was, it was a good experience. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it's kind of like haircuts, and it's funny. I got into a, an in-depth discussion about haircuts with Steve Albini, and uh, that, that, was, that was quite funny. But really, I mean, how do you explain to somebody, yeah, I kind of like it a little like this, parted here, done like this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, they, I don't want to, obviously, everybody hears things a little differently, and based on their history and whatever, they'll, they'll react a little differently. And we all have our likes and and dislikes and so but you know we all try to do our best and and get somebody to where they want to go mm -hmm. at the end of the day the records we work on they're not our records we're helping people with their records and so we we owe it to ourselves and to our clients you know really to serve their work as as well as possible well so tell me about um your work-life balance, you know, your outside of the studio relationships with loved ones and friends and, and having a social life, ha has that been easy for you or, or difficult for you over the years? Having a, well, work-life balance is a tough one. You know, when you work for yourself for any period of time, it's hard to say no to work. And uh, I had, you know, 20 odd years of, living sort of in fear of 
you know, not having enough gigs a month down the road or two or three months down the road. So I would always say yes. My answer to that was having a social life that included artists and musicians who were also always working until we would work together and that was my social existence. That's changed a little bit for me over the last, gradually over the last 10 years. I think I've developed a healthier split and and I finally figured out that if I say no to working on a record tomorrow, it's not going to mean the end of my career. But it, it took me a long time to learn that lesson. But I still have a little bit of that. I mean, I, I love my work. And so there's a part of me which also feels like, well, why wouldn't I say yes? If an artist comes to me and they've got something interesting for me to work on, sure, why not? But, um, but I'm much better at, at setting aside the time. I actually just uh, spent a week down in Baja, California last week. And that was um, an unusual thing for me to have done in, a, in my former life. So <laughs> I have three children and they are um, relatively intact. So I, I guess I, I must have been able to function somewhat outside the studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, family life and, and audio life sometimes, uh, I, I, you know, it's just like anything. It depends on the person and, and yeah. circumstances, but you know, yeah, it can, it can be a challenge. It can be a challenge. I mean, I, I, um, I'm a runner and I came back to running in my late thirties. Uh, I've run a bunch of marathons and so on. And that, that in some ways has been, you know, my therapy, my way of asserting, taking time out. If I go to run a, a half marathon or, or something like that, you know, it means a day and a half away. Um, and so that's also, I guess, uh, a way of getting some time to do other things. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Um, especially these days, more than ever, it seems we are all in the world of audio. No, really, no matter what uh, area you're in, maybe unless you're doing field recording, but we sit in front of computers quite a bit. Yeah. You're a runner. That's great. You know, was there a time where you were devoting all your, your efforts into working that your health ever was challenged that caused you to start running? Yeah. When I was in my mid thirties, I, my third, my youngest had been recently born. Um, I remember I tried to go out running one day and I think I got about a quarter of a block before I had to stop because I was out of breath. And right around that time, my father underwent a quadruple bypass. And I put those things together and I was just like, something's got to change here. So... Um, so those were the, that was sort of the writing on the wall that caused me to change my lifestyle. And I made a pretty, pretty drastic change in, in my habits. And, um, I'm a much happier person if I'm physically active. So, yeah. so now I just make sure I build it into my schedule. It's a, it's a habit or a discipline like any other, but it, it it's, I, I need it. I'm a jerk if I don't go for a run. You know, people don't want to work with me. Does that also include any any dietary things that you uh, prescribe to? For me, um, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the nice things about being physically active is it, at least from a caloric intake standpoint, you can you can uh -huh. take in a little bit more than you could otherwise. And yeah. I do like to eat. I do like to eat, and I've been known to enjoy a good IPA too. So, um, but yeah, I, you know. The rhythm of my eating is um, eat a good breakfast, eat a pretty sizable lunch, and I have a very light dinner. Uh, and I, you know, I go for vegetables and whole grains and stuff like that. But I'm not, I'm not really um, too disciplined about that. I, I eat generally. I eat good food, and it was my birthday yesterday, and so I had a piece of cake. I mean, because I love cake. Yeah. Well, happy happy birthday to you. Thank you. So you know, I just try to sort of eat sensibly and take care of myself. God, that sounds so like reasonable. I know. I'm sorry. I wish I had like, you know, like I eat three pounds of chia seeds a day or something like that. Something interesting to tell you, but. <laughs> something extreme, whether it's, you know, three pounds of bacon or three pounds of chia seeds. Or both. Or both. <laughs> it's, well, of course, it's the new bacon chia That's, seed diet. Yeah, I'm going to try that. <laughs> and then I'm going to write a book about it. 
Jonathan Weiner here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to pause and I'm going to tell you all about the blue-black headphones from Audio-Technica. That's right. Our friends over at Audio-Technica have a new set of limited edition headphones. It's the uh, ATH-M50Xs in a blue-black color. Very beautiful. If you're tired of the same old dull black and you want to do something a little snazzier than these blue black ones are pretty fancy. So uh, check them out. They're a limited edition. You can get them at audio-technica.com. You can buy them right off the website. And uh, that's it. Check them out. Great looking headphones. Let's get back to it. Jonathan Weiner here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. How has business been over these last 32 years? If, you know, were there ever pockets where you thought, oh shit, this isn't going to last? Or has it been fairly steady. You know, yeah. I've been pretty lucky. I think I started at a time when it was easier to have a full-time lucrative business and then developed enough of a following and a client base so that I've, I haven't really had any huge um, down moments. I think the, the challenging thing was that you know, with real estate prices going up over the last 20 years and the, the cost of doing business going up and invoices really haven't increased that much. You know, the, the sort of 2018 dollar is worth way less than the 1998 dollar. So that, that certainly put some pressure on my mastering facility. At, at the, the peak of my facility, I had three rooms and there were about nine employees, including accounting and so on. So that was a pretty big nut to have to to satisfy. But the, the good news, and I don't think this is being Pollyannish, is that with the democratization of music technology, you know, whereas there might have been, I'm going to make up some numbers now, you know, 10,000 records that were turned into CDs in 1985 or 86, there are probably, you know, 150,000 records that are going out over the internet now. I mean, the 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 amount of activity in and around music making and people who want to release something out into the world has exploded. Especially, you know, you, you look at the ADAT, which was the first salvo in moving people out of the sort of recording studio proper, and then took a while for hard disk recording to sort of make that next step. But, you know, we're, we're kind of there now. So if I did 1% of the records in 1986 and I did 1% of the records now, I would be really rich now because I'd be so busy. And there are a lot of people who need help in making their audio better. And so, you know, people there may be more people who don't want to pay for good services, but there's still but there are also more people who do because there're just more people doing the the uh engaged in the activity. So, um I, you know, as I said, I think I've been fortunate, but I think anybody who keeps at it and learns to do good work can find an audience and can can sort of make a make a lucrative practice for themselves. It takes a while. With so many more people making records, how is your business practice today in, in marketing yourself and getting work and getting a, a bit of that as compared to 1998? Well, so, I mean, you know, back in the day, print advertising was important. You know, now it's much more about social media and other kinds of online activities to s try to stay in touch with people and get out in front of people. You know, my, my experience always was that the work was going to come by personal recommendation or word of mouth. Somebody would hear about me from somebody else. And if they had seen my ad, or if they had also seen my website, that would sort of lend just a little air of credibility and, and a little bit of a push. And they'd be like, oh, you know, my friend said this person does good work. And yeah, I've heard of them. And so let me give him a try. But I think the word of mouth and building a history um, and a track record pun intended, is, um, God, that's like a double pun. Yeah. Wow. Track, track record. record. Or as we would say in Boston, a track record. Anyway, I, th I think that's really, really the most important thing. And so, again, I mean, I, I've touched records by, you know, I don't even know how many people. And if on any given day, 1% of them recommend somebody to me, you know, I'm going to be busy for quite a while. You brought up the number of musicians and the, or the number of records being made, but there's also maybe not in equal numbers, but there's also many more people 
calling themselves audio professionals, yep. mixing and mastering uh, online and yep. recording. You know, I teach at Berkeley College of Music. We have a music production and engineering department. And um, students go on to do all kinds of things. Some get internships in large format studios. Some go on to do, you know, post and other things. But every semester and every year, I see a number of students who really have an appetite to become solo and sole entrepreneurs, and they bust their butts. And I could name a whole bunch of names that are out there succeeding. Um, they're not getting rich. You know, they're, if they're three, four, five years out of school, they're still kind of slowly working their way into the world in terms of their profile, but they're doing all right. And again, I don't think I'm being Pollyannish, unduly optimistic or, or whatever. I, I really... In the same way that I think if you're a musician, if you keep at it long enough, eventually you'll find your audience. Um, it may not be, you know, the sort of pop mega success, but that's not what everybody necessarily wants. And that's certainly not what everybody gets. But um, I think it's it's possible to make a go of it. I'm not saying it's a smart decision. I mean, I, I also will tell young people, if you have an option to do something else that that would make you happy, maybe you should do that. <laughs> you know, it's a, cause it is a, a tough road to hoe, but knowing what you know now and what you've been through, if you were to start over today, yeah. and unfortunately I can't think of any other reason that you would do it. Let's just say, yeah. uh, your building caught fire and you lost all your gear and you had basically a blank slate to start with. How would you set up shop? Would you do it all over the same or would you change some of your methods not necessarily your audio, well, maybe your audio methods and your business methods. Well, I wouldn't replace all my analog gear. I'll start there because I think working in the box is entirely viable. The, the facility, the room is the hardest thing. And I would do whatever I could and be as clever as I could to, to create a, a decent monitoring environment to the extent that I could afford one. That would be my priority. But what I thought you were going to ask, and so it's the question I'm going to answer you know, I think they're in the same way that the CD and digital audio was kind of new and interesting and like crazy back in the day. I think that there are equivalents to it now. And I probably would invest more in thinking about um, immersive audio and uh, machine learning systems. And um, I'd probably learn, more, learn about coding and learn um, about building my own systems to help me create the music that I wanted to create and maybe collaborate with performers and artists. I, I love the marriage of art and technology. And so mm -hmm. I would be looking for, you know, sort of what's the thing that's new on the horizon and a little bit edgy that also might be viable uh, as, a, as a commercial endeavor. Um, so... You know, now that I've had a 32-year career as a mastering engineer, would I want to start again as a mastering engineer? No, I'd like to do... I'm ready for some new challenges, too, if I'm going to, you know, have to reset. Right. And actually, I mean, that's part of what I've been doing, is exploring new avenues and and learning about new technologies and, and uh, the the potential that new technologies offer us. Speaking of new technologies and machine learning, do you feel that things such as this, such as Lander are, do you view it as a threat or do you view it as, you know, the dehumanization of, of the art? No. Um, I don't think that anybody, when you interact with Lander, it has nothing to do with art. Lander is not about a creative act. Lander is about maybe the commodity or just sort of passing something through a box. It's like pulling up a preset and not listening to what you're doing and just taking the output and, and going on your merry way. I don't think there's anything objectionable about mm -hmm. Lander in and of itself, but if we are involved in music making because we are we love the craft and we love what we're making and we want to learn how to do it better and have control over what we're doing, you're probably not going to use Lander. You're probably going to want to try to figure out how to do it yourself. I, I really do make a, at least for the moment, a strong differentiation between the sort of automation that machine learning offers, which I think is great for certain kinds of things. I actually think that 
actually, here's an analogy. You know, a, a self-driving car, I mean, we're not quite there yet, but it, it's not a bad idea because m machines probably could be better drivers on average than most people, right? And we could avoid some of, if, if all there were on the roads were self-driving cars, we probably would have fewer accidents. And, and so, but yeah. if I want to go for a ride, you know, down a two-lane country road in Vermont in October with the top down, I don't want that to be a self-driving car. I want to drive the car because I'm in it for a different experience. And so that to me is the difference between Lander and, you know, something that I'm doing for enjoyment or to create art or beauty or, you know, based on the creative impulse. Yeah. Huh. That's a great analogy. I love that. You're, uh, you're an associate professor in the music production and engineering department at Berkeley College of Music, as you mentioned. Yes. Tell me what you get out of that experience. What's, what, are the, what are the positive aspects of that for you that affect you? Well, I, I learn a great deal by teaching. When you teach something, it requires that you're able to communicate what you're doing to people. Going back to this whole communication theme, I get to push the boundaries of what I understand and what I think I understand. And I have to constantly challenge myself to make sure that I'm not spouting BS in front of the kids because there's nothing more embarrassing. Um, I'm willing to be wrong, but you know, I'll, I'll teach based on what I think I know. I do enjoy giving back. I love seeing the excitement that happens when somebody grows and gets it and they you know, they practice something for six months and they're struggling and struggling and suddenly one day they wake up and say, wow, I'm much better at this than I was six months ago. And I've really learned something. Or even better, you know, five years later, actually there's a, a young engineer named Tyler Scott. When he graduated Berkeley, within two or three years, he was assisting on Beyonce records and so on. And he would come back and say, man, thank you, you know, for sort of helping me get started. I mean, he, he's sort of doing all the work himself, but to lend a hand in him sort of satisfying his own desire and ambitions, very satisfying. I love that. And at Berkeley, they're like incredible musicians. I mean, we've got, you know, Omar Hakim is the, uh, the chair of the drum department. I mean, it's, you know, it's just, <laughs> so it's, it's a great environment to be in. Um, and for those that don't know who Omar Hakim is, please Google him because I think you'll, you'll, your mind will be blown. Yes. Yes, indeed. We're almost out of time, but I, I, I do want to ask you, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, it, with regards to your students, the entrepreneurial aspect. Do you feel that whether it's Berkeley or what you know of the other schools out there, do you feel that the entrepreneurial spirit or the um, or the mechanics that come with being an entrepreneur are those being taught alongside the audio uh, instruction that happens? The answer is yes. There's a, an aspect of that that I'm not sure can be taught. You can talk about relationship building. You can talk about people skills. You can talk about putting together a resume. You have to not be a very shy person to really ultimately be an entrepreneur, I think. Um, and I think you also have to love a certain kind of organization and you know, making a plan and implementing it. I think that's not for everybody. Some people would prefer to be employees. I think you do have to be entrepreneurial in some way to just go out and get a job, you know, go knock on a door, whatever, and say, hey, you know, can I help? Um, and will you pay me? But it's not for everybody. So I think that that to some extent personality and does come into play. But we we teach there's a, a business class that's required and students have to think about contracts and they have to think about how to charge and yeah. and you know, should they charge and when is it okay to work for free when you're young and when is it not okay? And you know, we talk about uh, having a web presence and and all the Berkeley students, every Berkeley student in the first year takes a class where they're um, required to build an artist site for themselves um, and talk a little bit about who they might be, um, establish their identity. So, you know, the answer is yes, but, I mean, you know, we're still talking about people who are just forming a sense of who they are in the world. And when they graduate, they're 21, 22, 23 years old. They've still got a ways to go. I think science says that your brain isn't fully formed until you're 25 or 26 so i'm still feeling like my brain's not fully formed <laughs> maybe for different reasons but 
Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, and I, uh, you have my empathy. <laughs> well, so if people want to find out more about you, uh, from, uh, inter- you know, on the internet, wh- uh, where should they go? All right. I'll give you the complete list. <laughs> so lay it out. Yeah. Well, there's the, uh, the website is, uh, m-works.com. That's my mastering. Okay. Studio. Um, if you Google me by name or the studio by name, you will probably find the YouTube channel that you had uh, alluded to at the very beginning. I also work with Isotope, and so there's a bunch of educational materials you can find there, some of which I've curated, some of which I've created. You can find me through Berkeley. I've written a book about mastering called Audio Mastering Essential Practices, which is available through Berkeley Press. I think that's and then I run with the Cambridge Sports Union. So if you want to learn about running, you can go there. I think that's a good good list. That is a good list. That's a very well-rounded list. Yep. Jonathan, it's great to see you again. Uh, not sure when I'll see you again in person, but uh, thank you for taking the time to come on the show and, and chat with me. It's it's great to meet you when I did. And, and uh, I knew right then and there, I was like, I got to get this guy on my show. Well, thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure talking to you. I'd be happy to come back anytime and um, come on out to Boston and say hey sometime. I will do that. I will do that. Actually, I want to just say thank you for um, for the work that you're doing and giving voice to all of these interesting and experienced people that you have on your show. I think it serves a, a need and an appetite. It's so hard for people to get mentored. mentored. And so... And I think that's one of the, the great thing that's, things that's happening these days is that um, access to uh, sort of good, credible spokespeople to, or, and experts talking about the things that they do is, um, is really, it's a, it's a great thing. So anyway, thanks for being a platform for that. Oh man, my pleasure. I, I enjoy the hell out of it. I, it's, a, it's a great excuse for me to get to ask questions that I want to know the answers to from people I respect, so... Well, I'll talk to you later. Yes, indeed. Take care. Okay, you too. See ya. Jonathan Weiner here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Just a reminder to visit our sponsors that help make the show possible. That includes Lawton Audio, Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, and Focal Monitors. And of course, we've got to thank the other folks that make the show possible. That includes, of course, Mr. Cliff Truesdale, Mr. Chuck Smith, and Mr. Cole Williams. And of course, the other aspect of that is thanking you. I appreciate it. Check us out on social media. Spread the word. Tell all of your friends, every single one of them, including your parents. And until then, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.